Well, Hollywood. Right here. What? You're looking at him. Who? Hollis Wood. Where? I'm right here. Shoot, can't you understand plain English? Hollywood. Huh? Where? Here! Hello and welcome to Best Forgotten Movies, the podcast about the films that never quite made the first team. I'm Gareth Green and joining me as always is my full-time co-host and part-time George Lucas impersonator, the one and only Andrew Phillips. I like to shoot with two cameras, A camera and B camera, and I like to have my actor sitting down next to a blue screen so I can just sit down with my coffee. Wow, That's how I like doing films. It's like he's in the room with us. (laughs) (laughs) And on this week's episode, we're watching people shout a lot. In Steven Spielberg's chaotic wartime romp, 1941. Should we bring this boy home or sink this sub like a lonely turd down a toilet bowl? That and more to come, but first, roll the trailer. December, 1941. The California coast. The Japanese had just bombed Pearl Harbor. The nation's heroes were on the alert. Look, you guys, a Jap sub! The dummy's right. California could be next. Please, I shoot you! I don't know! This is war. A country's honor was at stake. The lives of millions would be protected by a brave few. This is their story. Excuse us, ma'am. From the director of Jaws and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. The most explosive comedy spectacular ever filmed. What the hell do you people think you're doing? <laughs> Dan Aykroyd, Ned Beatty, John Belushi, Lorraine Gann, Murray Hammond, Christopher Lee, Tim Matheson, Toshiro Mifune, Warren Oates, Robert Stack. Treat Williams. I can assure you, there will be no bombs dropped here. Boy, that was fun! Universal Pictures and Columbia Pictures present an 18 production of a Steven Spielberg film. Ah! 1941. Sayonara, sucker! <laughs> Dan Aykroyd, Ned Beatty, John Belushi, Lorraine Gary. Murray Hamilton, Christopher Lee, Tim Matheson, Tashira Mifune, Warren Oates, Robert Stack, Treat Williams, Nancy Allen, Lucille Benson, Jordan Bryan, John Candy, and Eddie Deason star. As Sergeant Frank Tree, <laughs> Ward Douglas, Captain Wild Bill Kelso, Joan Douglas, Claude Crumb, Captain Wolfgang von Kleinschmidt, Captain Loomis Burkhead, Commander Akira Mitamura, Colonel Madman Maddox, Major General Joseph W. Stilwell, Corporal Chuck Sitarsky, Donna Strayton, Gas Mama, Macy Douglas, Private Foley, and Herbie Kazaminski in Steven Spielberg's wartime-based Ode to Loud Noises. Based six days after the attack on Pearl Harbor, 1941 offers a comedic look at the battle over LA, as told through the eyes of the Saturday Night Live cast and their 60 co-stars. 
<laughs> it's worth noting that in that list that Gaz has just read off, he didn't mention the main character. No, that's about half the cast as well. It's not even the entirety of who and that's completely film. omitting the main three character. <laughs> Who is the character of Wally played by Baba DiCicco? Yes. Sir. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. I'm still puzzled as to why Dan Aykroyd gets top billing because he's hardly in the film and uh, he wasn't even a massive star at the time. And that was just the first page yeah. on IMDb. So there's plenty more there's where many that other came people, from. Including Mickey Rourke in his first film role. He yes. just appears and then disappears and then reappears again. I didn't actually notice him in the film while I was watching it. No. I only saw him in the credits and was like, where the fuck was he? He's in the cafe scene at the beginning and then he's in the tank later on. And then Oh, right. So he's In the middle, of- he seems to have gone and done another job somewhere. So, All right. And this was his first film role? This was his first film oh, role. Oh, so it makes sense that he's just really a glorified extra. So, Andy, I know that you're a massive fan of Steven Spielberg, much like myself. Yes. But is 1941 a film that you are particularly familiar with? Uh, yeah, I've never seen this film. I mean, this is going to be the case for a lot of these forgotten films because they're usually things that we're going to be re-examining or things that we've heard about. And especially in the case of 1941, it has gained a quite a heap of notoriety over the time. And it's one of those often discussed films, but again, one of these films that's been rarely rewatched by people. Yeah, I think people discuss it as being an anomaly in Steven Spielberg's filmography. But actually, I don't think many people have actually seen it or gone back to it, revisited no, it in no. any meaningful way. I mean, I think it's only due to this recent Blu-ray release that I think people are watching it more. Yeah. It's not a really well-recognized film, and I think it's one of those films that people have almost forgotten that Spielberg even made it. Yeah. And I'm very much like yourself. I hadn't seen the film until now. I'd seen clips from it. So there was a couple of action scenes that I rewatched. But in all, 1941 is a film that was completely alien to me. And I went into it having no idea what it was about other than that it was a comedy based in LA during wartime and that it had something to do with a Japanese submarine. And now that I've actually seen the film, that's still pretty much all I know about it. Yeah, I mean, the only exposure i ever had to it was in documentaries about spielberg or things like that where they usually just show the clip of the ferris wheel spinning down yes pier and that's the only shot you generally get when people talk about 1941 and it's there to represent how noisy it was well it was that shot of the ferris wheel going down the pier and also a small fraction of the dogfight over la yeah that's all i had seen of the film Mm -hmm. going into this episode so it was practically a fresh watch for me and it's funny seeing how it is when it's positioned in the general spielberg filmography being that it's placed in between close encounters of the third kind and Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's a really weird move for Spielberg. He was expected to go in more of an art house or esoteric direction, as he says on the making of documentary. Yeah. And yet he chose to go just completely slapstick and chaotic in an attempt at comedy, really, which is just a complete about turn. And I think this is a film that Spielberg kind of regrets making. I think he had a lot of fun at the time, but I think was probably slightly hurt by and learned a lot from the experience of making it. You learn a lot from failure, and it's all about how you bounce back. And the likes of Steven Spielberg bounce back hard, whereas to compare it to a very recent Spielberg comparison, which is M. Night Shyamalan, Mm -hmm. he encountered his big failure around about the same time in his career, three or four films in with, let's say, Lady in the Water, but he just kept plummeting down that sinkhole. Yeah, he didn't learn from the experience. No, no. A lot of that does go into the films that followed up, is that, no, he didn't learn from it, and he just continued making the same mistakes over and over again. 
up until the visit, which was actually okay. Mm. Okay, so we've already started to provide a little context as to when the film was made, but I think it's time we introduce the main players. So who was actually involved in 1941 and why did this film get made? So really, there's four main players that you can really describe when talking about this film, and that is Spielberg himself. Yep. But going back further to the conception of this film, we've really got to talk about Robert Zemeckis. Yes, definitely. Bob Gale. Yep. And John Milius. Two genius filmmakers in their own right, Bob Gale and Robert Zemeckis, Mm -hmm. and John Milius as well. Yeah. Just complete genius filmmakers, the whole lot of them. And it's strange that this film ends up quite the clusterfuck it is. I think it's one of those things where it's just too many cooks. Yes. You've got too many great ideas people shoving all their ideas into this pot and it just getting overstuffed. And it's just one of those things where someone didn't go stop. Yeah. And there's this attitude which Spielberg describes himself of an anything goes attitude. And it fully embraces that aspect of it. But I think that's the film's Achilles heel and that there's no handbrake applied to any of it. It's just literally as if a car's been allowed to go off a cliff. Yeah. And everyone seems to be enjoying this car going off the cliff. There's no restraint involved at all. And it's just a lot of people going what about this and even with that in mind it's one of those scripts where a lot of things are thrown into it and taken out but just not enough of it was taken out or refined because this was a film that had quite a long gestation period there was quite a lot of drafts written a lot of research went into it as well its conception actually started with john milius yeah well it started off at usc because zemeckis and gale went to usc with john milius and it was the idea that John Milius was giving them the break, which was the same kind of break that Coppola gave to John Milius when he Apocalypse when now. he gave him Apocalypse Now. Yeah, he was basically returning the favor or passing it on by hiring these two guys to write a script for him. Yeah, he had read a script that both Bob Gale and Zemeckis had wrote together called, called Tank. Tank. Yeah, so they were brought on board by John Milius, and then through John Milius's friendship with Steven Spielberg, Zemeckis and Gale became their protégés for the latter half of the 70s. They were the people that they wanted to build up. Yeah. Which they did successfully in the end. It was one of those things where it was... Yeah, it finally paid off. Very, very miss and then hit, really. They didn't really come into their own until Zemeckis had a hit with Romancing the Stone because up until that point, every single thing they did was a flop. Yes, it was completely. Used Cars was a flop. It was almost as if romancing the stone was the touch and go it was their um it was kind of their bound actually because in terms of going down to the wachowskis where they had to make bound in order to make the matrix robert zemeckis had to make romancing the stone in order for them to make back to the future yeah so this was a very miss part of their career literally everything (laughs) they did didn't do very well and this is right in the middle of it but you can tell that through the gestation period of this, they were doing a lot of research, a lot of love went into the making of this film. This is not a film that's a cynical piece. This is something that will probably never be made in this day and age because of the kind of context that it is and also for the subject matter and the way that it came about. This is very much a product of its time. Definitely, yeah. So one of the ideas to make the film actually came from John Milius, who wanted to make a film about the character Stillwell. Yes, and a series of actual events that took place in and around LA during wartime. So you've got the battle over Los Angeles when the army opened fire on an aircraft that actually wasn't there and what was probably a weather balloon just a few days after Pearl Harbor. You've got the idea of a Japanese sub being on the east coast, is it? 
I think it was still West Coast. But um, the funny thing is that all these events, the real historical events, all took place for a film that's called 1941. They all took place in 1942. <laughs> um, <laughs> I didn't actually so, know that. Yeah. So the battle over LA actually didn't. Yeah, they um, all took place in February 1942. So what oh, happened was there was a Japanese businessman who was inspecting an oil refinery in Southern California. And he had an accident where he fell over in some cactus and the, he basically landed on his ass in the cactus field and people laughed at him and you basically lost face. And to lose face in Japanese culture is very, very serious. It's not yes. a good thing to happen. Later on, when the war broke out and he was in charge of this submarine, <laughs> he decided to go very near to the Southern California coast and basically blast the shit out of this cactus patch just to sort of level the playing field somewhat and uh, this caused a bit of panic and then because of that i've got to stop you right here this shit that you're saying actually happened this actually happened this why is wasn't the, it in the film this is I, I don't know but this is the actual historical context of what happened oh my and god that's there brilliant. originally was going to be a, a japanese plot to actually have about 12 submarines off the southern california coast they weren't planning to hit anything strategic but it was mainly designed to be a demoralizing tactic to demoralize the american public for them to know that there were lots of japanese submarines just yeah. off their coast but due to the americans anti-submarine tactics at the time they didn't succeed in getting that far so it was only this one submarine that ever got close to the california coast but there was so much hysteria even for this one submarine at the time that everyone was on edge and the other separate incident which was the air raid over LA, where LA was blacked out for over six hours, that took place a day and a half later. Yeah, that was from this other incident. But yeah, it's kind of an embarrassing time for the U.S. Army, and the film does play on that. Yeah, it's meant to play on the hysteria and uh, well, just stupidity of yeah. many people. It's the film's virtue, but in America, it was the film's Achilles' heel because again, it's one of these things where. This is not something that the Americans want to know about or even watch anything about. No, because there's one thing that 1941 plays on and plays on well, and that's the absurdities of war. And um, it plays all for comedy, but it seems to me that Americans didn't want to see that. They didn't want to see their old films like Where Eagles Dare and stuff like that. These kind of straight-faced um, American retellings of their triumphant time during the Second World War. They didn't really want to see the hysteria and the kind of absurdity of what it was that they were doing and it, it's almost a shame that stories like that one of the um, japanese sub commander bombing a cactus field just because he fell on his ass there i'm surprised that that didn't actually make it into the final film yeah it's a great story in and of itself again i think it's another one of those it's truth is stranger than fiction things. yeah i think it's one of these things where i still think America has many issues with satire. Yeah. They have a very uncomfortable relationship with it. I mean, we saw it ourselves firsthand with our comments a couple of weeks ago about Bruce Willis. Yes, we did. Peace. And we had a quite a few interesting uh, Facebook comments <laughs> about that. And, uh, and again, I think it was some people who literally just missed the fact that we were satirizing the situation. And I think the sarcasm was lost on a lot of people. And I think the same thing happens. And I think... American TV especially, they do do satire very well. 
things like the um, the Daily Show, the Daily Show, or was it the Larry Sanders Show? Larry, yeah, Larry Sanders. Uh, things show. like that, and even I mean, this is a, a more obtuse reference because it's been created by a, a British person, which is the Veep. They do do satire, but just not as much as we do. I mean, we in Britain, satire is one of the main bastions of British humour. Yeah, our entire humour is based on taking the piss out of ourselves and each other. Really, nobody yeah. is free of ridicule in our humour and comedy. And that's starting to bleed over into American comedy now. Mm. But there's a lot of um, British comedians that have emigrated, let's say, yeah. to American shows and expanded upon those ideas, like The Office, for example. Yeah. I'm sure The American Office is a different type of show, but it still plays on the same ideas of self-humiliation. Yeah. It's not as um, widespread in America no. as it is in Britain. No, and I think it's because of the topic of choice with 1941 that people came down quite hard on it. Because I mean, the, the Second World War, I think Americans like to think of themselves as being triumphant, strong-jawed, the, the kind of the unifying factor that won us the war, won everybody the war. Yeah. No, we don't like to have that kind of played on in a satirical way, at that time at least, anyway. It's only exemplified by Spielberg's stories of him trying to get John Wayne and Charlton Heston involved in the film to play still well and ultimately being unsuccessful by both actors saying that the film well the script at the time was un-american and unpatriotic and a very silly film indeed yeah well john wayne was outraged by the script according mm. to spielberg and he called it an anti-american film and actually persuaded spielberg to not make 1941 mm. and then when he handed the script to john heston heston had a very similar response and described it as a pie in the face of america which is exactly what it is. He uh, he yeah. coined it. <laughs> he yeah. actually coined it. In insulting it, he actually um, praised it <laughs> at the same time. Yeah, I mean, um, Spielberg goes on to say what's wrong with sticking a pie in the face of the Statue of Liberty in a spirit of humour. And he's absolutely right. There's, yeah. no, there's no problem with that. You should be able to make fun of yourself. That's when you can tell that people are very uncomfortable about certain things when they can't do that yeah and they say this right at the start of the making of documentary this is a film that's loved by europeans and not by americans there's a real distinct line here because it's directly referencing very fictionalized but solely american events and it's something that they just didn't like one bit yeah not to provide too much of a spoiler for what we're going to cover later on in the episode but the numbers do reflect that. Yeah. This film played much better internationally than it did domestically. Mm. Oh, and just before we get into the story, I have one more piece of information that's probably worth putting out there. But Stanley Kubrick actually suggested to Spielberg that he should make 1941 a drama, or at least market it that way. So when people go to see the film, that would be a very, very much a shock indeed. Yeah. I think we do have slightly different opinions of this. The other thing that Kubrick said to Spielberg as well is that he thought that 1941 was a great film, but wasn't funny. And I kind of get Kubrick's point, and I think that I didn't find myself laughing that much. There were certain points of the film that I was laughing, but I found the, the whole experience of watching the film so exhausting that there wasn't really much time to laugh. And I think this is amplified by the way that we saw this film. We watched this film in two entirely different ways. I watched this film completely nonstop from yep. start to finish, whereas you took quite a few breaks. Yeah, I. whenever I felt like the film was getting too overwhelming, I took a break, I made a phone call, or I made myself something to drink. And it benefited greatly from that because I gave myself a breather where the film was refusing to give me one. Mm. And 
I actually liked the film's humor a lot more than you did. I actually found it quite funny. Yeah. As or, a result, um, I didn't feel like I needed to close my eyes and ears for a yeah. while just because of how overwhelming yeah. it is on a visceral level. Whereas I got the experience that you would have got when you saw this at the cinema and that it's literally just non-stop. Yes. There's no moments of respite at all. Yeah. Maybe apart from the opening shots, literally that's the quietest part of the film. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I think that's exemplified by the experience Spielberg had with test audiences with this film. They actually covered their ears and covered their eyes, not because the film was scary, but because it was just overwhelming. They couldn't bear to watch any more of it or yeah. listen to it because it was too loud. Yeah, I mean, even when I was watching it, there were times when I had to turn the volume up and down. Yes, I know, I definitely did, yeah. Almost like a problem in the mix somewhere, really, where it was yeah. like the dialogue was too quiet for the rest of the sound effects and the music. And he said that the worst thing about the screening was that nobody laughed. They were too overwhelmed to laugh. Yeah. And there is a lot of funny moments in this film. I personally found myself laughing a lot. And yet I can see how that was completely missed on people that were too busy, like, wincing or turning away or giving themselves that little break. Yeah, it's like there's no moment for the laughter. Like, you've got one funny thing on top of one funny thing on top of one funny thing on top of one funny thing. And let's... Oh, there's another funny thing coming. <laughs> and there's another funny thing. It's, it's literally just non-stop And all like the whiles, these funny things are being delivered with explosions and Well, these shouting. funny things are big. Yeah. <laughs> That's the main thing. There's nothing subtle about this film at no. all. Okay, so now I think we've provided enough context... It's time for us to actually delve into the film's many characters and plots. Many, many. Again, this is a film that has been entirely undisciplined in its making. It, it's um, Spielberg again describes this. He didn't have a singular vision for this film, and it does show quite dramatically. There's no restraint whatsoever. I think the only through line that he had was that adage of anything goes, and that was the only thing he had to go off. He says now that if Zemeckis had been a bigger director at the time, it would have been better if he directed it because he had a, definitely a clearer vision because the original intention of this film was it to be a very, very black satire, very black comedy. Yeah. And with Spielberg's involvement, it very quickly turned into a screwball comedy, very wacky, very insane. And uh, I think in doing so, maybe missed the point of the original material and he himself freely admits that that may have been what happened. Yeah, because there are a couple of characters that kind of jar against the tone of the film, mm. and I say that with reference to Treat Williams' character, who we will get into later, because yeah. he's a yeah. big point of one of the plot strands, but he's kind of a nasty rapist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the film plays it in a very screwball way, but yeah. what he's trying to do is essentially rape a girl. Yes. Uh, but I suppose we'll get into that in a bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's quite a few main plot strands that left me quite uncomfortable at times. And there were some things that just went on a little bit too long. Uh, again, there was no one to say no. Or yeah. can we cut this down a little bit? Or can we shave this off? And I mean, I'd love to look at all the different drafts of this screenplay as well to see how it actually developed and how it got shaped. Because there were so many things that they were putting into this to this film, which also incidentally had the working title The Night the Japs Attacked. <laughs> which I'm so glad they changed the title because that would have been really weird. That is awful. Yeah. And that's a John Millius idea as well. Oh, of course it is. <laughs> of course it is. The thing is, when nobody says no to Spielberg, you get 1941. Yeah. Which still 
judging it, and personally, I thought it was all right. Yeah. When somebody doesn't say no to George Lucas, you get the Star Wars prequels. Yeah. I think it shows just how good of a filmmaker Spielberg is that completely unrestrained and completely wild. He still delivers something that's technically brilliant. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is Spielberg on one of his off days. And even Spielberg on one of his off days is still pretty great. Yeah, definitely. He's still a filmmaker of great talent. But yeah, what this film needed is somebody to sit down with Spielberg and say, well, if you wanted to do that, you can't do this. Mm. And it doesn't have that. Like you say, it's anything goes. And that seems to be the adage that they use throughout the entirety of the film. And that said, I think the film looks like it was a lot of fun to make yeah because of that attitude it looks like a very fun time but it's because of that lack of discipline yeah and i think he took it a little bit too much as like a director for hire job yeah he uh, was doing it for his friends because he had nothing else to do at the time as he describes he hadn't got anything else lined up after close encounters yeah universal what's up on their watch saying what are you going to do next yeah we want you to make a film for us And again, the irony is that it became such a big production is that it had to be a co-production between Columbia and Universal. Yeah. I think this, in a way, is a film that probably didn't need to be made for as much money that it did because I think, in a way, it's kind of too big for what it's trying to tell. There's too too many things in there. Yeah, I wish there was more connective tissue between the plot strands as well because they do come together at the end but it's a very last minute affair yeah like i said for me um it doesn't feel like a spielberg film in that sense there are some jokes and gags that are very spielbergian yeah but in the way that the film's put together it doesn't have that level of restraint that you usually get from a spielberg film like if you compare this to even the film that followed it like raiders or et yeah there's so much restraint and um nuance in those films that just isn't there in this film well, I think if you judge it on a micro level, as on a scene-by-scene basis, there's a lot of Spielberg there. There are a lot of Spielberg gags, and it's a lot of Spielberg humour. And it has that kind of inventive action, this kind of kinetic action that rolls into each other that Spielberg is great at realising. But when you judge it on a macro level, it doesn't feel like Spielberg. It's missing those... It's missing that kind of structural soundness. I mean, you can't argue that this film doesn't have energy because there's just energy in bucket loads. But just, Definitely. just again, just too much. Everything's just too much. They should have called it Cocaine the Movie. <laughs> I think that actually oh describes exactly what this film is like. Yeah, it's I a think cocaine high. I actually wouldn't recommend watching this film while under the influence of anything. Oh, dear because God, Because it no. could actually have bad health there. Uh, <laughs> you could <laughs> end up with a heart attack or something, or epilepsy or something like that. Literally, it's one of those films that's... I mean, it's probably more breakneck than even some modern films. This is the most Spielberg ever came to being like Michael Bay. <laughs> really? In a way, yeah, I do see that. Because Michael Bay is completely about excess. Yeah. And this is the closest... And fucking Steven with the Spiel- frame. Yeah, and fucking with the frame. <laughs> and this is the closest Spielberg has ever got to just being purely about excess. So, yeah, yeah, it does have that element about it. And kind of slightly ignoring the story. That's one of the biggest things that it gets lost in it, is that there is a through-line character and there's connective tissue there but in the way that the film's put together that gets lost very quickly yeah it does seem to disappear a little too much in my opinion or at least i wasn't paying attention to his parts 
as much of a, as I should have been because I was too busy waiting for the other parts that I did like to come yeah. back into it. It's not really a, a film that has a proper full narrative. It's more of a film that has a lot of little episodes that are vignettes welded onto this yeah. rather slender main narrative, really. And not all of them are really essential to the story or really need to be there or really need to be that long. Yeah, I actually wrote in my notes that it felt like a sketch show film. Yes. It just felt like a series of sketches that had been cut together. Okay, so I think it's time for us to at least uh, give an overview of what some of these plot strands include, because there are a great many of them, and a great many characters. This pretty much includes the entire Saturday Night Live cast, really, of the time. Uh, I think it's best to really go off what the actual film's meant to be about. Okay, yeah. So, in a nutshell, this film is set six days after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. Yes. When everyone in America is on, sort of, on their toes... Yes. The film basically centers on a lone Japanese submarine that wants to attack Hollywood. They don't know what Hollywood looks like or what it actually is, but they, they just know to, it's they, the heart of America. They kind of know it as a name rather yeah. than what it actually is. That's literally the idea. And the rest of the film is about the hysteria of all these other characters that were involved and how they deal with this and how through lots of misinformation, everyone gets mixed up together and how they deal with this situation. That's literally the story in a nutshell. I can't really go into it much more because we'd end up just talking about the rest of the film, but literally all it is is about a lone Japanese sub wanting to attack Hollywood and how all these other characters deal with that. Yes, and there are a great many characters that we see deal with that. Yeah. I think there's got to be, though, about six or seven plot strands in this film. Yeah. Like individual fleshed-out plots, or, well, should I say fleshed-out, really, but thinly stretched plots yeah. that all culminate around this Japanese submarine. Sounds really weird to say this, but I reckon you could have called this film Chinese Whispers the Movie. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. It is a film about hearsay and paranoia. And it does play with the whole idea of race quite loosely, actually. Yeah. <laughs> there are a good few racial slurs going on in this film, so it's not exactly PC now. No, I mean, the thing is, well, it was never designed to be a... PC film. I mean, I think the um, the coins term that they were going for when they were creating the script, and this is another John Milius phrase, is that they were going for social irresponsibility. So this film was purposely designed to be un-PC. Yeah. There are quite a few racial slurs in it, but I think because the film takes the piss out of everybody, it does get away with it because everything's up for grabs in this film. Yeah, there's no character that says it in a way that we're supposed to root for them, no. really. They're all ridiculed in some way or another. The only character that I think we get to root for is Wally. Yeah. And that's because he's trying to prevent a rape. Yeah, he's the same man in an insane world. And it kind of goes on that, but unfortunately, again, just gets lost in the middle of it all. But yeah, he's meant to be your character that you root for and uh, he's the through line and he's the character that joins everybody else up together. And it's how everyone else ends up being literally together at the end of the film yeah so his story is that he's in love with a uso girl who's going to a party called betty who's the daughter of ned Beatty's character correct yeah and she's going to a party where she's supposed to get with some soldiers like a morale booster yep it's the jitterbug contest she captures the eye of treat williams (laughs) a dazzling treat williams in this film it must be one of his earlier roles anyway also known as the eyebrow rapist (laughs) And she's not taken by him whatsoever. No. But he's literally so enamoured with her that he's going to drag her out of that room kicking and screaming to what is implied 
would be a rape. And yeah. so Wally comes to the rescue. And I think there's some interesting things that they could have done with that character. But again, I feel this whole plot strand for me is very much one note. Yeah, it is. There's no ebbs and flows and nuances and it doesn't add anything new. Once it starts, it basically continues in the same vein right to the end. Yeah, the goals never change. No. There is no twist in the story. And there's no development. There's no character the, yeah, development. This, this literally says, these are the characters, this is what they do, and they're going to stay like this till the end of the film. I do actually like Treat Williams in this film, even though I think tonally his plays character a despicable is character. all over the yeah. place. Because I thought he was going to be like some sort of heroic character that comes good in the end or something like that. Well, that's it, because he looks like the all-American hero when he's initially played that way. You know, he's got that strong jaw and heroic look about him. But actually, they just push that all-American hero to such an extreme, they make him into something of a monster. He's just a nasty bastard, yeah. Yeah, and I do like that element of the film. It's a very smart thing, Yeah, but it's kind of like also a bit uncomfortable to watch him. Yeah, he doesn't really get a proper comeuppance, but the only only thing that I kind of wish they would have actually done, which I actually thought did happen, and then I was kind of almost disappointed when he ended up coming back into the film, he gets knocked out during the Hollywood Boulevard sequence, I thought he'd actually been killed at that point, which would have actually been a better comeuppance for that character, considering how despicable he actually was. That's exactly what should have happened to that character. He should have been killed. Yeah. He was a character that definitely deserved to die in this kind of slapstick way, as long as they could think of a funny way to do it. Perhaps he's the only person that the Japanese are able to destroy. Yeah. You know? (laughs) The all-American hero. So victorious, they return home. (laughs) Yeah. I think that would have been a better satire as well. Exactly, yeah. Um, But uh, yeah, I think they kind of shied away from it. And unfortunately... it just doesn't resolve itself and it becomes quite an uncomfortable thing because of that. No, the most that happens to him as a comeuppance is he gets with, and I use this with um, with speech marks on either <laughs> side, he gets with the fat girl yeah, who is very attractive in her own right. Yeah, so this is the character played by Wendy Jo Sperber, who's uh, more well known for playing Marty McFly's sister in the Back to the Future films. And she actually, unfortunately, died uh, in 2005 from breast cancer. So, uh, yeah, there was a little tribute in the Back to the Future documentary in the Blu-ray about her. But, yeah, she's playing this particular character. And it's quite funny as well. My girlfriend said, (laughs) why do fat characters always have to be stupid in these films? Yeah. All these characters are very much stereotypes or archetypes. They are all one-note characters. It's because there's so little time that they've got to make a character. They have to be one-note. And that yeah. note is played throughout the entire film. Yeah. And unfortunately, because some of them have more screen time than others, it kind of shows in some of them as well, because yeah. they're given far more screen time than they actually deserve as a character. There's the other plot strand of Tim Matheson, Nancy Allen storyline, which for me, I didn't particularly care for. And I think went on far too long. It did go on far too long, but it culminates with a fantastic it cum- dog It does, fight that, it does have a great LA. payoff, but the build-up was just far too long, and they needed more elements to it, because at the end of the day, all of that aspect of the film is that the guy just wants to get off with a girl and uses her love of planes to do that, and that's literally the whole and thing. And she can only get off she only in gets, a plane. It reminded me a bit of, um, almost like a precursor to Porky's. It's yes. very much Porky's-style humour. The tone of that actually slightly felt wrong for me for the rest of this film. It kind of felt a bit too adult. It's a for the rest holdover of the film. from that earlier Robert Zemeckis version of the script that yeah. was a little bit raunchier and a little bit darker. And it does feel that way, much like the Treat Williams character is as well, I assume. But yeah, it just felt like this was something that could have been a self contained scene 
and then when you meet these characters again, they're doing something else, or and then it comes back into it at the end. Yeah, they just felt like that character had one goal, like he had one thing that he was meant to do, and they kept playing on it, and it got a little bit boring after a while. It did, it did, uh, but luckily, like I say, it's salvaged by an absolutely excellent dogfight over LA. Yes, that looks fantastic. It does look amazing. It literally looks better than any CG you could ever get because it is spectacular. Honestly, I watched it thinking, geez, I wonder how they've done that. I, I knew that there was some kind of miniature element going on, but I I couldn't quite figure out which shots were miniature and which weren't, and it turned out they were all miniature. Yeah, these are, these are special effects by A.D. Flowers, and I think this was his last film before he retired. Oh, it's a great high to go out on in terms of the special effects work. It is yeah. absolutely solid. Going back to the Treat Williams character and talking about his comeuppance, the other thing about what happens to him, it's actually a precursor to what happens to Biff in Back to the Future, which is they play on the idea that he keeps on driving into manure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and in this one, he does a very similar thing. Treat With Williams eggs. drives into eggs, and it's almost like a little precursor yeah. to the whole Biff Tannen thing. And that's one of the, the more successful elements of that particular character, I think. Yeah, it is. And I feel they could have actually played on it more. Definitely. Because, again, there wasn't much more to that character. It does feel like this whole element of the film, this idea of the battle over a woman's love, it does seem to have been played out in Back to the Future. Yeah. In in a very similar way. In that Biff Tannen, as well as Treat Williams in 1941, are kind of both horrible rapists, or or would-be rapists. I think Treat Williams comes off as more horrible, though. Because Biff is very cartoony, whereas this seems a little bit more... Uh, actually, out of keeping the rest of the film, it feels a little bit more real. Yeah, I think it's because Biff Tannen looks like an obvious bad guy. Yeah. And he feels like a cartoon jock. Whereas Treat Williams, there are almost maybe a couple more layers to his character in that, in appearance, he's very affable. Mm. And he's charismatic. And you want to like him, but he's just horrible. So it kind of makes him more insidious as a character. I think the mistake they made with it was making him instantly attracted to Betty immediately from the start because I feel it should have been something where he would have started to do this after a certain period of time because the other main problem is we don't have enough time with Betty to see how great she is as to why he would be attracted to her because he's literally just attracted to her immediately just based on face value so it kind of doesn't make that aspect of the plot as strong because I feel it would be stronger if he was actually genuinely obsessed with it for who she was or what she was representing whereas it's just a case of ah she is a girl i will want to fuck girl that kind of thing <laughs> it's very robotic in that sense yeah it's primitive yeah there's the main flaw of this whole film where we're just not given enough time for any of these characters to develop or gain their own characteristics no and there are a great many plot strands that you could pick and choose and put together in a really great way you could choose any of these and to elaborate on them and to make them more of what they are. I mean, there's so many of these plot strands, I'm sure we're going to forget about talking about some of them because it's one of those films that's just an embarrassment of riches. Like, the cast list is incredible. And um, this goes back into the development of the film. There are certain self-contained stories and characters that are much more substantial than they should be because they cast a big actor in that role. Yeah. Uh, and a, a main example is, or the main two examples we can give are John Belushi yes. and Slim Pickens. 
Yeah, so let's uh, let's get into Slim Pickens' yeah. character. Now, give us a chance to talk about this oh, Japanese submarine, so we can we can cover this plot. <laughs> this, is, this is plot two. All right. <laughs> oh my god, this is plot two. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I mean, the Japanese plot is, I'd say, is kind of the main plot because it's it's the instigator. Yeah, it's, it's the thing that sets everything off in motion. It does get lost later on, I think. Uh, he he disappears once. Yeah. Um, task has been fulfilled he kind of disappears from the film which is a shame because i like him as a character yeah but this is a character that was originally written to do a completely different task in the original script he was meant to just like run off he literally didn't have any lines to start with and then spielberg cast slim pickens and then it was requested that they expand this part and in fact they added so many elements to this section of the film that the original scene was actually taken out and uh wasn't even shot and there's many more parts of this that are on the cutting room floor. Unfortunately, so I think, because there are some great deleted scenes involving this character. And there's quite a jarring element as well. So the, the main point of this character, the Slim Pickens character, is that his name is Hollis Wood. And he owns a uh, Christmas tree plant. Yeah, like a Christmas um, tree plantation. And his, obviously, his because his name's Hollis Wood, he has the nickname Hollywood. Yeah, they he think he's Christmas Hollywood. Tree. And they think he is Hollywood. And um, they come ashore and kidnap him but the actual kidnap is cut out of the film so all we get is slim pickings driving towards his christmas tree ranch and then the next shot we see him actually on top of the submarine being lowered down into the insides yeah and we don't find out exactly how he got there no there's no gag involved either it's kind of boring yeah it's really unfortunate that this is probably one of the things that they just cut for time because they were really pressing into making this a two-hour film that the set piece of how he actually ends up on the submarine is actually great. It's a really funny sequence, but unfortunately it can never be integrated back into the film because they lost the audio track oh. for it. It's just missing and it really jars. Yeah. There's lots of jarring moments because it's just slapdash. The editing is all over the place. And I think at this point, I need to clarify, we both watched the theatrical version of the film. Yeah, and we haven't seen the extended version. And I've heard that the extended version of the film is much better and gives it the breathing space that it very much yeah, needs. Yeah. And also provides a little bit more connective tissue between all these individual plot strands. So by all accounts, the extended version may be the better version of this film. Mm. But considering that most people have seen the theatrical, we decided it's best if we kept to the version that people were familiar most yeah, with. Yeah, because this is also what the film's reputation is based on. Yes. Uh, and why it's been ultimately forgotten. So I think the extended version, much like when we were talking about in June the other week, I think this is something we'll examine later in a mini episode or something definitely, like that. Definitely. Okay, so where were we with Slim Pickens? Well, we got to where he gets... Picked up and taken to the He's boat. actually on the submarine and there's lots of... Plays on words to Hollywood. Lots yes. of misunderstandings going on, <laughs> which is quite funny. And actually, this is all the scenes as well that include Christopher Lee. Yes. Who may as well not actually be in the film, to yeah, be honest. We... I, I love Christopher Lee. Yeah. And there is some funny back and forth between him and Toshira Mifune, who mm. is from Seven Samurai. So, yeah, there is something going on. But actually, I think he's just there to be a white guy amongst all all these Japanese people. And I don't think Christopher Lee is given much to do. Hmm. And as a comedy actor, actually, he's pretty good. You look at him in Gremlins too. He's always playing the stiff. 
in these kind of comedy films, he's always playing the straight man because he's got that straight man look about him. But even if looking at the Wicker Man, there's something kind of outrageous about his character and out there. Mm. And you look at what he's prepared to do for films and what he's prepared to contribute to. Again, going back to Gremlins 2, it's just a fucking bonkers film. He understands comedy. Mm. And in this film, I just don't think he's given anything to really work with. His whole idea of, again, it's he's, he's one note. His whole thing is that he's German. Yeah. and He's just a stuck Nazi he's character. Just a, yeah. Exactly, stuck Nazi. Yeah. And I don't even feel like, given the style of the film, they even need to go for that realistic option of having everyone talking different languages because it kind of feels no. out of style having that part of it grounded so much. So I think it would have been better to have everybody speaking English and I think it would have made the characters come through better. Yeah, I have to agree with you. There are a couple of things with the subtitles work. I do love the uh, part in this particular part of the film where the uh, submarine commander is complaining how crap all the Japanese instruments are <laughs> and there's the whole little gag involving the um, the little coupon compass that they have that actually works <laughs> what happens is they empty all of slim pickens belongings out on the table yeah and at this and point we realize they are completely lost and have yes. no idea where hollywood actually is yeah there's this box of like popcorn snacks or something like that and yeah, it's literally is, yeah. a prize inside the box like you would get in a packet of cereal and in order to sort of gain the upper hand slim pickens actually swallows this compass and they literally have to wait for him to shit it out again <laughs> and it's literally <laughs> one of the best sequences in the whole film where slim pickens is pretending to take a dump by just throwing boots into a <laughs> into a toilet bowl and screaming yeah again it's another loud noises scene but yeah. it's it is funny i do love the idea as well that they kind of waterboard torture him with prune juice yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah and then following his escape from the submarine directly after this sequence slim pickens disappears from the film never to be seen or heard of again and it's another one of these things where the screenplay has been written in such a way and then being cast in such a way they've had to build up this part but because they've gone so far down the line of writing the script there's no other part for him to play once his bit's done yeah definitely he just kind of disappears and you do get a sense that he was supposed to be a much smaller character yeah. because of that. But then again, I feel this should have been an opportunity where they could have merged certain characters into one another to create a bigger sense of cohesion. Yeah, by having Slim Pickens make contact with another kind of um, plot strand in the film, yeah. but other characters in the film from that point. Yeah. For example, I think for me personally, I reckon you could have quite easily have merged the Ned Beatty character with the Slim Pickens character and yes, actually definitely. had both of those plot strands working together with each other. That house could have had a Christmas tree ranch on it and it could have all worked around the same thing. Yeah, and then it could have been him going back to his house where there is this massive gun in his yard. Yeah. And I can see the rest of the film already is him just sat on this gun waiting mm. for this submarine. Everybody thinks he's a loon, but <laughs> he's waiting uh, for the submarine as out there. Is, even down to the geography of where the house is and where his, his Christmas tree plant would have been, it would have actually been funnier that the Japanese were actually correct in where they actually were, but were thinking that they were in the wrong place. Yeah. There's so many great actors in this film that just aren't given enough to do. You do get brilliant actors like John Candy literally given no comedic material at all because all they're there is to just be there and no, push he's got the story one forward. obvious gag in the film and it's a play on race where he gets yeah. uh, covered in 
black kind of I don't know exhaust well, black, fumes, black dust, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and they tell him to get to the back of the tank. Yeah, Fra- and then uh, oh his, Frank Frank, Frank McRae, his yeah. other wasted co-star, is covered in another uh, hilarious white dust. actor, just oh, not giving so many to so do. many in this. Going back to the Japanese submarine, the cold open of the film is actually a play on the opening to Jaws. <laughs> and what did you think about this opening i mean just to give you some context as to what happens it is a faithful recreation of chrissy watkins um it's an extremely faithful recreation yeah yeah the first victim of the shark chrissy watkins who is played by the same actress susan Backlini. Oh, yeah susan Backlini. yes and what did you think about this opening i'm kind of neither here nor there with it really because it's I kind of, in one way, I don't feel it should be there because it's kind of a bit too much on the nose and directors shouldn't really parody their own films, especially one where it's a film that's only come out four years previously. Four years before, yeah. And this is, again, another example of no one saying no. This is definitely Steven Spielberg's hubris film. This is his Mm -hmm. film that brings him back down to earth when it fails and he learns from the experience. But the other hand they having so much fun with it it's not in any way a cynical movie it's not one of those horrible epic movie or you know when they do no like they're not superhero just, yeah they're not just recreating a shot from another film and adding a fart joke yeah because the whole joke here is that you're expecting a shark to pop out of the water and instead this japanese submarine does and catches chrissy watkins with it as well but i'm kind of torn myself on this joke i like it and i do like the payoff which is a japanese sailor i guess looks up on the submarine to see chrissy watkins bear behind pointing yeah. out i keep calling the character chrissy watkins but it, it essentially is yeah it's the same Do you know what i would have think would have made it better go on if they didn't use the jaws theme music oh that's the thing i was because that, it underplays it, yeah. it and it really takes you out of the film that's it that's being far too self-referential yeah and i think they should have been a bit subtler with this part of the film i was just about to say that where that gag fails the jaws one is when the music comes into it mm. because that's when I winced a little bit on the inside. Yeah, because like, oh, it's do saying this. we are parodying Jaws. Yeah, it's more. It should have been one of those things where if the audience gets it, they get it. If they don't get it, it's fine. Yeah, definitely. They would have just thought of it was something else because the rest of the scene doesn't say this is a reenactment of Jaws. It's yeah. only when the Jaws music comes in that it's saying we are ripping off our own films. No, definitely there is a certain amount of ego and arrogance, and it's weird it. as well. It's kind of. Uh, it's John Williams as well doing it to his own music. He's almost defacing his own music. It's really strange how they do that. Yeah, and I guess when you're inside the machine, it's hard to see what's yeah. going to work and what, what's yeah. not going to work until you see it play with audiences. And that Jaws gag didn't quite work in terms of the music. But the rest of the score is fantastic. And the actual main theme to 1941 is solid. It's great. It's, it's, it's really instantly memorable. I'm surprised I haven't heard it till now. It's, it's almost got this kind of, um, again, this American heroic quality to it, but at the same time, it's playful and fun. Yeah, and I think in a way, this is John Williams that is most adventurous. This is not a typical John Williams no. score. It's very much rooted in the 1930s, 1940s, the Benny Goodman era that he was actually describing in the making of documentary with uh, Sing, Sing, Sing. And he really goes all into it in terms of the the jitterbug sequence is the music in that sequence as well as all the dancing is absolutely superb i think that and along with the dogfight which we mm. spoke about earlier but the jitterbug sequence actually is when the film 
comes together in a great way it does yeah and i wish the film was more of that yeah or at least that in the right amount (laughs) and this is another thing that spielberg wishes he could have done at the time would be to turn this film into a musical yes which i think for some of the aspects of the story that they had especially the ones that were probably less fond of that probably might have worked better Definitely, actually ended up being very woolly and just go on far too long. Yeah, there's almost a sense that he's battling with that all the way through the making of this film, that actually he's constantly thinking, oh, it should have been that other thing. Like, it should have been that musical because there is almost a stage show type feeling Mm. to it. I think it's also that uncomfortableness of saying, right, this film was originally meant to be this, but I've pulled it in this direction, but should I pull it further? It's his uncomfortableness at pulling it further in that direction that have kind of led to something that's kind of half-baked because it's neither one thing or the other. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I can see that. Because they're his friends, but he's also slightly changed it himself due to his own influence to make it this more screwball comedy, demolition derby, as he describes it as well. It's almost like the film's disliked by many for the exact reasons that he made it. It succeeds in all of Steven Spielberg's ambitions except for landing with the audience they disliked it for the exact reasons he made it what it is yeah it's not often that that happens it normally happens that a film fails in what a director intends to make it when a director makes a horror film and it isn't scary audiences don't go back to it this was everything that spielberg wanted it to be it succeeded in every all of those ambitions and yet it kind of turned audiences away the intentions of making the film were good ones, but I think we still needed that person to go, no. So how many plot strands have we actually got in this film? So we've already talked about the Japanese subplot. We've got the Japanese subplot. So that's number one, let's say. And then we've got the annex to that, which is the Hollywood subplot. Yes, so let's then say we've got Treat Williams we've got and Wally and Treat Williams yeah. and Betty. So that's number three. We've got Wild Bill. Wild Bill Kelso. Wild Bill Kelso. Which is his own thing entirely. So it's number four. Yeah, we've got the... On the uh, Ferris wheel. Yeah, Eddie Deason and Murray Hamilton on the Ferris wheel. We've got the M3 Lee tank guys, which is Dan Aykroyd, John Candy, and so that's number six. all that. We've got Ned Beatty. And the gun on the lawn. Yeah. So that's number seven. We've got Tim Matheson and Nancy Allen. Oh, I almost totally forgot yeah. that. Yeah, that's number eight. We've got General Stilwell. <laughs> number nine, who's watching Dumbo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which actually supposedly happened it did yeah. i don't know if he cried at it like he no. does in this film i like that about the character yeah apparently that's what turned john wayne off the film completely uh, is him sitting down watching dumbo and crying at the screen and have, singing along with it have we got anything else there must be one more i'm sure we're forgetting oh, something here i think that's it but there's other little things here and there. Well, you've kind of got the Jittybug contest as well with the characters within that. Yes. You've got... Oh, there's so many things in this. In all, though, you've got nine... Eight or nine main plot yeah. strands that are all interconnected at different points, but not as kind of successfully as you would hope. Yeah. I think for something like this, you'd really need to pare it down to like five or six rather than Definitely. eight or nine. It's Definitely. just far too much to put into a two-hour film. Because there's so many people that just get lost in this. And unfortunately, the main character is one of them. Yeah. (laughs) In order to cut for time, they literally had to cut out the main character. Yeah. Pretty much. But yeah, there's so many aspects. I mean, you've even got friends of characters like uh, Bobby DiCicco, Wally's best friend of the film is completely lost you kind of think they're going to be uh, almost oh, like a double act him. you almost feel they're going to be a double act at the yeah. start 
when they're making the breakfast in the diner and then he disappears for a long time and just appears sporadically throughout the rest of the film and then magically reappears at the end of the film as if they've been together the whole time. I had forgot about him completely until yeah. you're mentioning it now. There's so many characters, like you say, and a lot of them feel like peripheral as well. A lot of great names just in peripheral roles. And I know we spoke about it before, but I just can't help. But that's the thing that I keep coming back to as what's wrong with this movie. It's just too much going on. Yeah, I mean, even in the tank core, there's just too many members of that tank core. You've got Dan Aykroyd, you've got John Candy, you've got Frank McRae, you've got Mickey Rourke, you've got Treat Williams, and there's another guy that I don't even know his fucking name is. You could make a film just about them. Yeah. Make just make a film about this tank troop. It would be fucking hilarious. Yeah. I think one of the things I have to mention as a trivia point, <laughs> uh, going back to Maury Hamilton as an actor. Yeah. But there's a subplot involving Maury Hamilton and Eddie Deason <laughs> stuck at the top of a Ferris wheel with rifles in their hands. And a dummy. Looking out for a submarine. Yeah, and, and there's a dummy with them. Credited as the dummy. But it's actually an interesting fact. Yes. About the casting of Eddie <laughs> Deason. <laughs> If you want to... Well, they cast Eddie Deason based on his performance in I Want to Hold Your Hand because they were already friends by then. Yeah. Because that was Robert Zemeckis' directorial debut. And Murray Hamilton's character is called Claude and Eddie Deason's character is called Herbie. And like the they're not meant to get on with each other. They'd already cast Murray Hamilton at this point because obviously through Jaws. Yeah. And um, when they went to cast Eddie Deason, Murray Hamilton actually went up to Spielberg and said, hire this guy because I already hate this little bastard. <laughs> so... <laughs> It does come through. It really does come through. You can just tell that Murray Hartman really doesn't want to be there on that Ferris wheel. Yeah. And their subplot really doesn't add much to the story, but I'm glad it's there because anytime it cuts back to them, I think it's gold. And it's all about that dummy as well. The moment that dummy came out, I I laughed and I had tears in my eyes. Yeah. But I know Eddie Deason, actually. This is to just go off topic. My memory of Eddie Deason before this film was actually not Grease, not I Want to Hold Your Hand, <laughs> which I've seen, but it was, in fact, Dex's laboratory. Yes. He played Mandark, or provided the voice for Mandark. Yeah. He's also the voice of the annoying kid in the Polar Express. So he is. Yeah. <laughs> another Robert Zemeckis film. Yeah. He's going to be in another film that we'll probably be covering, which he's also a voice in Rockadoodle. Oh, definitely. Film. Yeah. yeah. He's a bit like uh, Charles Nelson Reilly, I'd say. He kind of has that distinct voice and gets around a bit. <laughs> it's weird when you watch the Polar Express and his voice turns up as yeah. this kid because you know it's this, like, probably 40 year old guy. Yeah, it's weird. <laughs> but it's this 11 year old kid it's and it's weird. his voice. It's very, very strange. <sighs> Somebody bought it me on Blu ray and I've still not taken the wrapper off. It's the only film I own that I haven't taken the wrapper off because for me, that's what started Robert Zemeckis and his downward spiral into yeah. motion capture hell. I can't believe that it's actually <laughs> regarded as being a Christmas classic now. It's a shocking film. It looks creepy and there's no story to it at all. It's just episodic to the hilt. Yes. It's weird. Well, I think that's it. The whole dead eyes of it really gets to me. And when I watch it, because the technology isn't there, it looks really creepy. Yeah. You're looking at what is essentially animated dead kids. Yeah. But there's no compelling story there. <laughs> no, definitely not. But it's weird because it plays every Christmas at the cinema. Yep. And, and on my telly. cousin has it as one of her favorite Christmas films. That's completely alien to me. I guess mm. I was already too old when this film came out. And according to us, it bombed completely. And yet it grew to be something of a Christmas classic. Yeah. I don't like it. Nope. Anyway. Sorry. <laughs> tangent, 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 tangent. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's lots of these plot elements that do 
slightly pay off because these characters are in the Ferris wheel that gets blown up at the end. Yes. And the same thing with the Tim Matheson, Nancy Allen characters in terms of their plane being mistaken for a Japanese plane. But the whole lead up doesn't need to be there. It's because it's stretched thin. Yes. Again, it's one note. We keep saying it. With the Murray Houghton character, they set them up and then we don't return to them again for at least another 40 odd minutes. Yeah. Yeah. So they're kind of forgotten about and then you suddenly jump back to them. So that momentum is lost with those characters. So I think the main thing that we probably need to talk about now, because he's the other main build actor on this show, apart from Ned Beatty, who's the guy with the gun, is John Belushi playing Wild Bill Kelso. Yeah, on our Blu-ray cover, he's in fact the main head on the cover. He's really the marketing point of this film. (laughs) Him and Dan Aykroyd. And actually, they are in this film, shockingly, very little. And their characters that they play are of very little use. Yeah. They don't really influence that much in the film at all. To be honest, even while Bill Kelso, he's another character that has no setup at all. He's just suddenly there, and it's very confusing, his, his whole intro. I, I really. don't know where he's come from. No. Is the idea that he's come straight from Pearl Harbor to here? That would have made more sense. Almost like after the Pearl Harbor attack, yeah. he's just kept on flying. He's like and one of never the only survivors. Like, yeah, as he's a little one of joke. the only survivors. And that would have made much more sense. And I feel like that's what's setting up because he's in such a desperate situation that he even lands his plane to fill up at a gas station. Yeah. And then continues Yeah, he's just been flying continuously over the ocean. Yeah. That would have been a better thing. Instead of him flying through the canyons when you first see him, Yeah, it would have been him flying from the ocean to California and getting yeah. home. And he's been literally flying all this time. And that's his motivation in that he's been involved in the Pearl Harbor attacks but you get none of that there's no. nothing he's literally just this crazy character that comes into it and although I really do like the gas station scene it's one of the best parts of the film when the actual gas station blows up yeah <laughs> do all those people die are we led to believe because that gas station had people in it and it, it does explode yeah like gratuitously yeah there's a lot of hijinks for that character there's a lot of things that he does but none of it amounts to anything no and again, this is another character that was written to come in at the last minute and attack the plane. And that was his role in the film, which is the only thing he's meant to do. But because they cast John Belushi in the role, they had to make it bigger. And I always use the analogy of Pocahontas, where they took the comic characters out of the film to make it more serious. Then someone said, oh, we need more laughs in this. I, we've got a bigger actor. We need to make this bigger for him. They try and shove it back in and it doesn't work. Yeah. It just feels kind of like, again, peripheral. It's actually a basic screenwriter's mistake. It is, definitely. It's the idea of, oh, I'm lacking something, some element, so I will just add a character Mm. that will provide that, but in the same way, adds nothing to the story. I think this is almost something that wouldn't happen these days, having guys like Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale write a film like this for Steven Spielberg. It kind of feels like... Only at this particular time would this film have actually gotten made, yeah. being in the state that it was. Because if you presented the script for this now, there would, I don't think anyone would take it. No. It's just far too all over the place. It's just not disciplined enough. I think the only other main character that we've not really mentioned is probably Ned Beatty. And the whole thing with Ned Beatty is that he's obsessed with guns. Yes. And Lorraine Gary is his wife. And he doesn't she, like guns. She doesn't in the house. like guns, and that's that's their entire relationship. And the gag is that the gun ends up inside the house. It does, and it destroys the house. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Hey, this could be like a scathing criticism on gun ownership. It's a scathing criticism on gun ownership tied hand in hand with patriotism because it's the gun ownership and his patriotic speech at the end, which basically destroys the house. It destroys the American household. Yeah. There's something going on there. There is something at work here, Mm. clearly. There's so much love and subtext and research put into this screenplay. Just needed that extra person to go, we need to just pull this back and just get to the core of what this is about and what we need to have in here because that person wasn't there. It wasn't John Milius. It wasn't Steven Spielberg. Yeah. uh, And no one was stepping up to that plate to say, look, guys, we need to make sure we've got something that's cohesive here. So the entire film culminates really in the Ned Beatty household as the submarine's offshore and um, he's really opening fire on it. The Pacific Park and Ned Beatty's house are pretty much adjacent to each other. So the whole climax of the film takes place on the coast around this area. And and you've got characters going to and from Ned Beatty's house to the funfair and back Mm, as well. Yeah, and it all climaxes around those two areas. And following... The destruction of the funfair and the Ferris wheel and the tank on the pier. This all happens very quickly after each other. The submarine submerges and goes home because they think they've destroyed Hollywood, yeah. having destroyed the funfair, <laughs> which they thought was Hollywood. And they feel that their honor is now intact. So they submerge and go home with John Belushi. But in turn, the Americans think they've defeated the Japanese. They think they've sunk the sub. So they think they're victorious as well yeah it's a comedy of errors yeah and literally at the end of this film pretty much all of the principal players bar a couple all end up outside ned Beatty's house and uh, all that's left to happen is that general stillwell arrives at the scene to find out what the hell has gone on whilst he's been watching dumbo really uh, <laughs> and then this is where ned Beatty gives his patriotic speech and the house falls into the sea and that's pretty much where we leave the film it's a great sight gag of the house yeah. falling into the sea. And it looks fantastic. Mm. They've clearly got the house on rollers. And it just kind of rolls off the cliff. Yeah. Because <laughs> I know that was meant to be a an earlier part of the film. That was meant to happen simultaneously with the gun being in the house. Ah, right. But at the time, they felt that the last scene didn't really have a, a punchy moment. So they moved that part to there as being like the punchline. Yeah, and it um, works. And it it's works, a, it's, yeah. it's a good gag to end the film on. And it's a nice aerial shot as well of the... Yeah. Just all literally... The principal the, cast. And also just the footprint of where the house was and all, yeah. the, uh, <laughs> all the pipes and the water flying up and everything. And uh, that's really good. I like that Ned Beatty doesn't notice until he opens the door. <laughs> the, the only thing that's left standing is the door yeah. that he stood in front of and when he opens it, the entire house is gone. How did he not hear it? And again, the collapse of the house is rather noisy, as yeah. is everything in this film. So <laughs> Loud yes. noises! Yes. <laughs> We've finished the film, but the loud noises don't cease. No. So what we get, which is exactly the same thing as we got in June, because this is also a film that lacks coherence and has far too many characters. It's quite similar in that respect. Yeah. And it's also a film that's far too short for what it needs to be. Yeah. We get another you have been watching moment (laughs) where we literally have the names of the actors next to footage from the film to show you what actor's been playing what. Mostly really. of them screaming at and the yeah, camera. Yeah, that, that's the twist on it. Instead of them just standing there, nearly every single shot is of them screaming. So we don't even get any <laughs> respite in the credits. And this continues after this sequence when we get the normal rolling credits, but we are interrupted every 30 seconds by a huge explosion going on in the background. So even Spielberg doesn't even give the audience respite when they're leaving the theatre. 
yeah, I can see why this was perceived as being an overwhelming film because yeah. honestly, even as you're leaving, it's they would have been covering their ears yeah. and their eyes just trying to get to safety. I could even argue that the only respite is the opening couple of shots before the the main part of the Jaws parody. Even before that, the opening crawl is still quite demanding because it's like a Star Wars sort of old war movie style of opening scroll to tell you what's happening yeah but there's so much in that it opening scroll it's going yeah it's uh, quite overwhelming even from the start <laughs> just to read uh, it doesn't need it either no really. it doesn't it gave me a headache i had to have a paracetamol afterwards <laughs> so i can uh, see that yeah. i was well and truly painkillered up when i didn't watch this film <laughs> Okay, so I think we're both beginning to form some loose ideas as to why 1941 has been forgotten. But perhaps the stacks and facts will provide our arguments with stronger foundations. First are the critics, and what did they say about 1941? Well, the Rotten Tomatoes score is 32%, with an average score rating of 5.1. I mean, it's not Spielberg's best film, but it's certainly a little on the low side for yeah. me. It's weird. It's weird to be in a position where I understand where the criticisms are coming from, but I still quite enjoyed 1941. I'd say the average probably would have been... I mean, the contemporary average probably is more along the lines of maybe 50 to 60%. Yeah, I'd say that would be more fair. I'd say edging on fresh would be this film for me, really. I'd say fresh, but not quite. No, okay. Not this version, anyway. Maybe the extended version. Maybe the extended version. version. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And Empire gave it 3 out of 5, with Kim Newman saying it's an unfunny but amiable Spielberg misfire. So really, it's just kind of more of the same. It's the heart's in the right place, the execution slightly off. But I think the best quote actually comes from Roger Ebert, who uh, (laughs) he gave it 1.5 out of 4, which initially looks very low. But he does say, it's not fair to say that Steven Spielberg's 1941 lacks pacing. It's got it all right, but all at the same pace. The movie relentlessly throws gags at us until we're dizzy. It's an attempt at that most tricky of genres, the blockbuster comedy. And it tries so hard to dazzle us that we want a break. He goes on to call it a good-hearted, cheerfully disorganised mess that makes us appreciate Doctor Strangelove just a little bit more. I do actually agree, and before I even read that review, one of the things mm. I kept writing down in my notes is Doctor Strangelove did this better. And Doctor Strangelove did it better because it was focused. Yes. Despite all of these characters, it still felt like just a couple of different stories going on at once. Yeah, it's only really got three plot strands. Yeah, exactly. So it is still... A madcap film mm. with some screwball comedy elements. It's got Peter Sellers really hamming it up in brilliant ways. But it does feel more restrained yeah. in terms of story. And running time. And running time, yeah. yeah I mean, in Doctor Strangelove, you've only really got the, the war room. You've got the Sterling Hayden and British Peter Sellers, the RAF guy. And then you've got Slim Pickens and the bomber. That's literally it. Yeah. You've only got those three elements at play. They bounce off each other and they're well balanced to each other. Whereas, again, this film just needed to take a leaf out of that book and sort of focus it down on four or five of these elements. Going back to the Roger Ebert review, I do agree with everything he's saying. I come down on the side of the film more positively, but I do agree with every single one of his points. It's mm. a very strange position to be in, but I think it's simply because of the way that I viewed the film. I didn't see it in a theatre where I was unable to take a break from what was going on. I did take breaks, and I found it much funnier than it seems critics did. Mm. So, um, 
perhaps it was just my ability to intervene on the film itself actually yeah. improved the uh, viewing experience. I'd recommend anybody that watches it really to to approach it in that way. The other thing as well, having not watched it like that, having watched it almost as a complete film, because it's so overwhelming, it lacks that crucial element, which is the element of comic timing. Yes. Because comic timing relies on pauses and silence, and it's always the gaps in between things. And because there are no gaps... I don't think it is as funny as it should be no. because it's just trying to pile as much crap on there as possible and seeing what sticks. And it's not the same thing as Airplane where there's so many gags a minute. They still leave gaps and different types of gags, whereas with this, it's just about, in some aspects, how many things they can break within a minute. Yeah. Uh, and I feel that part of it gets so overwhelming that it's, um, well, it did give me a headache. It's just perhaps a little too visceral. Yeah. It did find one fan in a curious place with uh, Pauline Keel, who is a film critic and journalist, a well-respected one, or was at least. And she was very vocally critical of Spielberg's output. She hated Jaws. She hated Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And she puts across a good argument for both of them, even though I disagree completely. But 1941 was actually a film that she enjoyed a lot. (laughs) And she thought it was the first Spielberg film that actually spoke to her on some level. Although she does go on to say something about the critics of the time when it comes to 1941. And I do think that she does touch upon an unpleasant truth, which is that she reportedly said to Spielberg, you're not going to get off easy. We're waiting for you to fail. And the thing is about 1941 is it is something of a failure for Spielberg. But that's compared to other Spielberg films. Yeah. That's compared to what we know Spielberg is capable of. Taken as a film divorced completely from that, it's still pretty good. It's okay for what it is. It doesn't deserve quite the harsh reputation that I think it's gotten. It was definitely a failure critically, and it's one of these films that is now regarded as being a flop, but in fact it wasn't a flop. Sorry, I'm actually really quite surprised by the box office figures for this one, actually. I mean, this is really a classic case, when you put it in modern context, of a film underperforming. Yes. This is not a flop by any means. No. This is a underperforming film by Spielberg's standards. And given the fact that his preceding two films were some of the biggest films ever made, I think anything that was going to come off less was going to look be looked at as a failure. Because... Uh, even adjusted for inflation jaws is still one of the biggest films of all time yes especially it, when adjusted for inflation it's huge it bigger than some of these blockbusters we have now um, well it was the first blockbuster yeah so first out of the gate it was the film that coined the phrase blockbuster yeah. and it made a staggering amount of money so 1941's budget was 35 million dollars yeah which was for that time incredibly high yes really high and then yeah in terms of domestic it was probably a flop because it made $31 million. Okay, so just under its budget, okay. It had an opening weekend of $3 million based on limited release. Opened against The Jerk. (laughs) (laughs) I love that film. Yeah. Another Steve Martin great. But overall, it made $92 million worldwide. So over two-thirds of the box office came from overseas. And I think that just shows the difference in between the audience's enjoyment of the subject material in terms of what people liked. Because I know when they had the premiere, 
in LA, everybody already had the knife sharpened for it and everybody in the theater hated it. It's one of those moments that was actually quite amusing, I think, to John Milius because they kind of knew that everyone was going to hate it already. Yeah. And it was just quite an amusing situation to be in. Yeah, people <laughs> were willing to bend over backwards to hate the film yeah. in America. And yet yeah, overseas, it really fared quite respectably. Mm. That it actually made nearly three times its budget really signifies that it's something of a modest hit. And uh, Spielberg himself says it's the one film that people really talk about with him when he visits Europe, but never gets mentioned at all when he's in America. <laughs> yeah, to put it on a personal scale, it's actually my uh, father-in-law. It's one of his favourite films, 1941. Mm. I think he's seen the extended cut, but mm. um, he says it's one of his favourite films. And when he found out we were doing it as an episode, he was quite excited by the yeah. prospect. So, I mean, over here, it's definitely more well-received and across Europe, I guess, so as well. Which is not surprising, really. Again, we've spoke about the idea that it's um, American people making fun of American ways and Americans mm. in a very kind of loving way. But I guess at the time, that's not what they wanted to see. No. And I think because you still had enough people who were army veterans of World War Two, yes. I think a lot of people did regard it as being in bad taste and you know that kind of it is of oh, these young kids these all these baby boomers making films about things that they don't know about yeah i think that's it as well it's spielberg gale and zemeckis really were figureheads of the next generation of filmmakers and so the kind of the last generation were mm. sharpening their knives for whatever they prepared yeah because it's almost like don't you take away the thing that we love yeah you are ruining it and we're seeing it recently with the uh, backlash towards certain casting of characters of different races we've got our first kind of black lead in star wars and that mm -hmm. created something of a stir we did when fantastic four came out and had a black actor in it and it, it, there's an element of this kind of older generation of white people saying stop taking away the series and franchises that we love that we made mm. and and giving it to these new people these new more diverse audiences <laughs> it's it's kind of it's backwards yeah it's just a very silly argument really it's essentially an argument for people who don't like change. Yeah. And yet change is what everything needs. Everything needs to change and progress. Okay, so I think we've actually covered why we think this film's been forgotten and come to some solid conclusions. So all that's really left for me to ask is the big question. And it's a hard question for me, but should 1941 be best forgotten or is it one of the best of the forgotten? It's a tough one, isn't it? I'm it's, really on the it, fence. I'm more enthusiastic about it for what came after and the fact that those films may not have happened if this film hadn't happened. Yeah. I kind of appreciate it more that it was a learning experience for Spielberg and there are some great moments in it and I love the model work and everything and there's some individual characters and individual sequences that I love, but I don't love the film as a whole. I found it quite nauseating to watch. Yes. Uh, and just too much of everything. It was just um, too undisciplined for me to say that it's a, a good film. For me personally, I would actually go the other way. I think it's actually probably best forgotten this particular version in terms of the theatrical version because I think it fails to do its job particularly well. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I'm in a tough position because I know that at some point I'm going to watch the extended edition. Mm. And I'm going to probably give it that second, second chance. Mm. But at the same time, I don't want to keep holding back because there's another version out there. Yeah. And I did actually quite enjoy 
this film. We are on just slightly opposite ends of the fence, I yeah. think. Because although I agree with all of the flaws that you've raised with this film, and I've come up with a few myself, I actually had a slightly more enjoyable experience with 1941. And by the end of it, I was glad I watched it. And there are things that I would change and that definitely need work. But actually, I do think it's probably not deserving of the vitriol that it's got. Mm. And could do with a you know, a, a few people giving it that second chance. Just because there is a lot of fun there. There is humour. And as long as you watch it in the right environment, with the ability to give yourself a break whenever you need it and to stop it becoming that nauseating mess. Yeah. I think under the right circumstances, people will like this film. So I'm going to come down on Best of the Forgotten, but only just. The only thing I would say, calling it Best of the Forgotten, I think it's worth revisiting because I think for a lot of Spielberg fans who haven't seen it or people who are aware of Spielberg and maybe like the films that are either side of it, Close Encounters and Raiders, and it almost is like a, it's a split between two parts of his career for me. Almost like Hook is actually as well where you get that film that fails or underwhelms and then it's almost like a split. It's like a stopgap between parts of his career. So you've got the early part of his career, which is the 70s career, which is Jewel, Sugarland Express, Jaws, Close Encounters. And then you get the second part of his career, which is starts from Raiders and then goes all the way up to Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade, really. And then is broken again by Hook, which goes into sort of Jurassic Park. And that's a different era. This is almost another stopgap. And it's a vital part into working out how he got from one place to another. So I think it's worth watching for that to see yeah. how he gets from Close Encounters to Raiders. Definitely. And it's weird that you speak about it in that way and I can see exactly where you're coming from and I agree with you. But just a couple of weeks ago, we spoke of Ridley Scott having transformative films mm. and them being the best films of his career. Mm. And yet Steven Spielberg does have these transformative films they're the kind of duds of his yeah, career. Yeah, They're the films that force him to take stock. Yeah, exactly. So it's definitely worth watching for that. I'm just, I'm still just very, um, I didn't enjoy it as much as I thought I was because there were too many parts of the film that I didn't care for that got played off too much. And there were other parts of the film that I enjoyed more yeah. that didn't get enough screen time for me. Okay, well, I think for the purpose of this episode, I will side with you. I will concede to you <laughs> uh, in the event that I will watch the extended yeah. edition and mm. come back to it. But officially, I will concede to your better judgment. But uh, <laughs> personally, yeah, I do think it's just slightly, just about one of the best of the forgotten. Mm. And that's all we have time for for today's episode of Best Forgotten Movies. Be sure to like, share and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at B4Movies, so please do get in touch with your suggestions for future episodes. Now things are getting hairy for next week's episode as we're watching Joe Johnson's show his full moon for Universal's The Wolfman. But for now it's bye from myself and ta-ta from Andy. Ta-ta chaps and chapesses. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.